Um, this morning we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Uh, before we get to our text this morning, uh, as, as someone who uh, played baseball uh, for many years, uh, up into college, and uh, uh, really loves the game of baseball, uh, as I was thinking about this text today, uh, one person came to mind, uh, the once pirate and two-time World Series champion pitcher with the Boston Red Sox, Tim Wakefield. Tim Wakefield passed away on October 1st of this year at the age of 57. And if you read any of the obituaries, any comments uh, that, that past teammates or friends made about Tim Wakefield, the thing that was repeated, the word that was repeated over and over and over again was humility. He was known for his humility. He was a really good pitcher. Um, he almost had as many wins with the Boston Red Sox as the great Cy Young did in his career with the Red Sox. He was six wins shy of that career mark. But he didn't have an overpowering fastball or an amazing curveball, but he threw the knuckleball, a pitch that was considered by most to be, quote, a junk pitch, not worthy of a major league pitcher. Yet this pitch, Wakefield says, taught him humility. He often said, I had no idea where the pitch was going, <laughs> but neither does the batter. <laughs> not only did being a knuckleball pitcher keep Wakefield humble, but more importantly, his humility came from his faith in Jesus Christ. No matter the circumstances that he found himself in from almost being released from the Pirates when he was in the minor leagues because as a first baseman, he couldn't hit professional pitching to helping the Red Sox win their first World Series in 86 years, he remained humble. Knowing that no matter the circumstances of life, his worth, his strength was not on his accomplishments, but through the grace of God and Jesus. And this morning, we're reminded by Peter that the God of all grace is our strength. Let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 14. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. 
and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to your word today, Lord, we pray that your spirit, by your spirit, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would be strengthened in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would be prepared to go from this place humbling ourselves before you and our relationships with others. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we come to the end of our series in 1 Peter that we titled Exiles. And throughout this letter, let me remind you, Peter has has reminded those that he originally wrote to and us that because uh, of Because in Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We live as exiles in the world. This isn't a punishment. God is not absent. God is with us, even through great trials and sufferings. And last week in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we saw that Peter is addressing the elders of the church directly. But he's also addressing all God's people who were to listen to his instructions so that we would know what kind of men make good leaders. We saw that those who seek positions of leadership often desire leadership for the wrong reasons, or we often ourselves pick the wrong leaders. And we saw from our text that because Jesus is the good shepherd, we need leaders that serve like Jesus, that exercise oversight like Jesus, and who are his under-shepherds. This morning, Peter continues his final appeals to God's people in Asia Minor, what's now modern-day Turkey, and to us today, now focusing on the entire congregation. He addresses one of the foundational characteristics of Jesus, and therefore the followers of Jesus, humility. We must cultivate humility in ourselves and in the body of Christ because our lives are often full of pride. Why do I know that our lives are often full of pride? Because we have a hard time of repenting. Repentance takes great humility. I don't know if you're like me or not, but I can come up with a thousand reasons why something I didn't do something or why I did something this way or that way instead of just saying... I'm sorry. It takes great humility to say to someone else, I've sinned against you. It takes great humility to accept the free gift of grace of God and Jesus because we have to say, I can't do it myself. Even those who might outwardly display a certain humility those people are often covering a heart full of pride. But we see in our text, our main point is that because the God of all grace is our strength, we can live in humility. Because the God of all grace is our strength, we can live in humility. Humility with one another, humility before the Lord, and humility 
in our battle. First, humility with one another. Verse 5, we read, uh, we read, uh, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Throughout Peter's letter, mutual submission is the key in the pattern of life in Christ's church. Peter keeps returning to this theme that Christians are to find freedom in their submission before God, a freedom which they can submit to others for Jesus' sake. We can honor all people and submit to lawful civil authority. We are free to submit to their master. Christian servants are free to submit to their master's wives, to their husbands, husbands to show corresponding respect for their wives. Peter has laid this out throughout his letter. And the same principle appears in the relation of Christians to those who ask the reason for their hope during their trials and suffering, if you remember from chapter 3. Because Christians reverence the Lord, they do not fear people, but can treat them with gentleness and respect. The same humility before the Lord sustains suffering Christians as they wait for the return of our Savior, the one to whom we all must submit. And when Peter says in the same way in verse 5, he is continuing this application of this main principle of the roles and relationships within Christ's church. And he begins with the younger, and there's debate on whether this is younger elders, but it seems in the context that this should be taken as those younger in the congregation. First and foremost, he speaks to them directly, especially the younger, right? That oftentimes, I don't know if you're like me, but when I was young, I thought I knew everything, right? The older I get, the more I realize, the less I know. And so, He's addressing those younger who are to submit to their elders, to choose those who they should submit to. Peter says that we need to question ourselves. If we constantly judge our leaders, deciding on what we do and don't like, what, will we, what we will and we won't follow, are we truly following them? And so he addresses those who are younger who who might, out of their disposition of kind of a desire to show how much they know, to submit to their elders. But he doesn't leave it with the younger. He says then to all of you. So he's addressing everyone, not just the younger in the congregation, but all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And he offers this instruction with a, a theological motive to clothe yourselves with all humility toward one another, for God opposes the cr- proud but gives grace to the humble. And the interesting thing is that this idea of clothing yourselves with humility is uh, uh, often referred to in the Greek as an apron that a slave or a herdsman tied over their outer clothing, their tunic, to keep it clean. In Greek culture, this humbleness meant an attitude expected of slaves, but not worthy of free people. 
right? Peter is calling the church, the followers of Christ, to put on something that the, the culture that he is writing to, a culture might like, much like today who would despise humility, writing to them to, in a culture where humility is expected of slaves but unworthy of those who are free. But Peter is calling those in the church to put on this humility. Peter's using this image, something that wasn't worthy of free people, but he's flipping it. Because remember in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, you are free in Christ. You are more free than anybody else, but don't use your freedom for evil. Your freedom, Peter is saying, not only allows, but equips you to be humble, equips you to humble yourself before others, before the Lord. Your freedom is where your true humility comes from. Knowing that you have all freedom in Christ Jesus, you can put on this apron, this garment of humbleness. Like your Savior Jesus who served you, putting on a garment of flesh, coming in all humbleness to be your servant. Not only is it humility before one another that Peter is reminding us of, but humility for the, before the Lord in verses 6 through 7. Our humility with one another springs from our total dependence on the grace of God. Added to that is the calling and example of our Savior, right, who had everything to boast in, to boast of, but humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. The humility of which Peter speaks is like the humility of the tax collector in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both go to the temple to pray. Remember, the Pharisee goes and he stands where everybody can see him. And he prays out loud, how great I am, Lord God. Thank you that I am not like the tax collector over there. But the tax collector knows his sin is great. He can't even lift his head to look to heaven when he prays, but he beats his chest, crying out for mercy before God. You see, humility is not just simply a winsome graciousness. Humility is the ability to repent, the ability to have a desperate distrust in ourself that turns to God in saving faith. And when we live in that humility before God, we can live in that humility before others. Peter is calling for humility in situations of hostility, 
betrayal and persecution, right? That's the context of which he's writing in. And so he's calling for this humility in this context where it's a hostile environment to live. There's betrayal around every corner. There's persecution that comes from society because you as a Christian do not engage in the ways of which your culture asks you and wants you to participate. And in such situations, Christians are tempted to react in pride, right? Oh, I'm not doing that because I'm better than you. I've unfortunately had that sense in my own heart. I'm not going to participate because I am better than you. I know better than you. Sometimes Christians are viewed that way by the world. Oftentimes, rightfully so. Sometimes we're so prideful that we'd draw the proverbial sword as Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is such pride that the promise of the Lord dispels. Christians can trust the power of the Lord for his hand is mighty, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But before, Peter reminds us that God's mighty hand is on our side. We can trust the faithfulness of the Lord for our cares are his concerns. Humble yourself, therefore, behind, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. We cast our worries upon God. We express our trust in his mighty hand, acknowledging that he is Lord and sovereign over all of life, giving our anxiety to God because he cares for you. God is not indifferent. He is not cruel. He has great compassion on his children. And Peter says he will sustain you in every distress because he cares for you. So not only are we to humble with ourselves with one another and before the Lord, but that humility must also carry over into our battle with our adversary, the devil. If we do not live in humility, we will fall to temptation and sin. So that's our third point, third subpoint: humility in battle, verses 8 through 9. Peter says, vigilance is needed because the devil is on the prowl. We must remain vigilant and alert until the very end because the devil seeks to destroy our faith. The devil inflicts persecution on believers so that they will deny Christ as Peter did the night before Jesus' death. Right? Peter is writing, as we've said over and over, and he's writing from personal experience. This is not something that Peter's just like, oh, it's a good idea. This is personal experience that Peter is writing to the church and reminding the church. Remember, Peter was full of pride. And yet he lives out this humility in Christ. 
The devil's fury against the Lord and his kingdom is all the more intense because he knows that he is ultimately defeated. He may threaten the church from within, masquerading as an angel of light. He may rage from without using the fire and sword of persecuting tyrants. But the follower of Christ knows that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Each individual is responsible to say no when sin presents itself, as Paul reminds Titus in chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Yet the command to resist the devil, like other commands throughout Peter's writing, is addressed in the plural, not the singular. We often read Scripture in the singular, you, but often it is you, plural. And so when Peter's addressing our need to resist the devil, he's addressing us together, not merely individually. We are part of the church, and together we strive to live faithfully, assisting one another in the battle against the one who prowls around, seeking to destroy Right? We are not on our own out there fighting in the Colosseum on our own, trying to withstand the, the beasts that have been released. But we are in battle together against the one who prowls like a roaring lion. We have the company, the army of the church to fight that battle with us as the Lord is with us through this battle. It is one of the reasons we need humility in the battle. We can't do it on our own. Unfortunately, many of us believe that we can. This is my battle to fight. This is my thing that I have to overcome. I have to do it. But Peter is saying that's not true. This battle that you are in is one in which the entire community of God's people fights with you. Peter calls Satan the enemy or adversary, and this term has a, a legal connotation to it. It reflects the Old Testament picture of Satan as the accuser of the saints before the throne of God's justice. In the book of Job, as we heard in our Old Testament reading, Satan appears in this role of heavenly prosecutor. In fact, it would seem, according to the book of Job, that Satan patrols the earth, collecting evidence <laughs> to bring before God. Satan's motivation is not zeal for justice. He seeks to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. We see this in Zechariah's vision where he stands beside Joshua the high priest as his accuser and is rebuked by the angel of the Lord. The danger to the Christian is not that we are helpless before the devil. We are equipped individually and corporately with the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 and following. The shield of faith will extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The danger is that he will fail, that we will fail to resist, that we will not watch and pray, that we will not put on the full armor of God and take the word, or to take the sword of the Spirit. 
That sword, the word of God, was the weapon that Jesus used in the desert when the devil came to tempt him. And it is ours to use in his name. And here's an imagery that I think is even greater as we think about Paul addressing you corporately. There are many times when I don't have some of those pieces of armor. I've lost it or uh, I can't find it. It seems to maybe doesn't fit quite right. But I have brothers and sisters who have that piece of armor at their ready disposal. They have that piece of armor that fits just right. They are my allies in the fight. They can stand with their shield of faith, maybe when my shield of faith is a little too heavy to lift. They can put on the breastplate of righteousness when I don't feel so righteous. They can stand with me in the battle if I'm humble enough to know that I need them in the battle. God's call to the glory of Christ comes to the grace of Christ. God is the God of all grace, grace that can meet every need and prevail in every situation. Peter describes the power of that grace in four verbs. In verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter knew this truth in a way that most could never know. Right? When the devil came after Peter and he denied knowing Jesus three times on that fateful night, we saw this when we preached through Luke. Peter was not cast away. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And I said back then that had always read that and had always thought Peter looked, Jesus looking at Peter and Peter saw a look of disgrace, a look of Jesus being disappointed in Peter. But as we saw in the text, that's not what we see. We see Jesus actually looking with compassion and care for the one who's just denied him. Jesus cared for Peter, drawing him out of his anxiety and pride and into his care so that he could do what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish him over a breakfast on the beach along the Sea of Galilee. Peter knew firsthand what the grace of God can do. And that grace is available to all God's people, which Peter exhorts and declares is true in verse 12, for us to stand firm in it. One of my professors, Dan Doriani, uh, commenting on this passage, and I'll end with this. He says, the gospel brings us low, but it lifts us up. Mm. 
The gospel brings us low because it leads us to confess that we are sinners. We have no hope except except in God's sovereign mercy. It brings us low because it says that we can do nothing to redeem ourselves. We must wholly depend on Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. By his wounds, we have been healed. But the gospel exalts us because it demonstrates that the Lord sets great value on us and loves us. To come to the Lord as he is offered in the gospel is to be humbled and exalted. We become children of God, called with a purpose and heirs of life. So let us wrap ourselves in humility. In that way, we own the gospel and let it permeate our lives. As Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. Because the God of all grace is our strength, we can live in humility. Humility with one another, humility before the Lord, and humility in the battle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Lord, we pray that as we know this reality of the hope that we have in Christ, Lord, that we would put on, clothe ourselves with that humility, that we would be able to humbly submit to one another, that we would humbly come before you, Lord God, and that we would be humble in the battle, knowing that it is not in our strength, but in your strength. It is not in us alone, but because of you and your body that you have given us, the church. We pray all this in Jesus' name.